last Saturday night, the team of eight people who um, went from Christ Community Church to Haiti, last Saturday night, the team of eight people who had left on Thursday um, to go help out and do some things in Haiti were sitting around Saturday night eating dinner. And we finished dinner, it was around 8 o'clock, and we were sort of sitting around the table there, and I decided I'd walk down the hallway and go check uh, some email in Charles's office. And I had been warned that Charles was looking for me. I wasn't sure if that was a good or a bad thing, uh, but I came into the office, and he was coming out of the office, and with a pressing earnestness, I don't know if he asked me or he told me, but he said, we need you to preach tomorrow. And I said, well, I'm not prepared to preach. I didn't, I just had tennis shoes and short sleeve shirt, no tie. And somebody else was on the schedule that I'm sure had put in some work that week. And I tried the best to try to maneuver around not doing it, um, not feeling particularly prepared. But Charles, if you know him, was graciously insistent and so, Alex, you've probably felt that before, I'm sure. And so I said, well, you know, the best I can do is just repeat the sermon that I did last week at Christ Community Church. It came out of Second Timothy, and it was on um, encouragement. And so when I said that, he said, yes, you must do that sermon. And then he looked at me and said, I need to hear what the Lord has given you to say. And so the next morning, Charles and I stood at a pulpit, and he had gotten me a tie that didn't match with my shirt, and I was had my New Balance tennis shoes on. And uh, I spoke about uh, Tim- Second Timothy, and I said that Paul was calling Second Timothy to suffer. And so as I stood there before the 300 or so Haitians that were there, I said that that's the same calling for each of us is to suffer and the question is is when we're suffering and this was the line that I used or something close to it I said when everything crumbles around you what do you do and so that has a sort of haunting feeling for me this week as I told these people who now would walk outside of their church and have a Uh, what I heard was a hundred people sleeping on the ground right outside and of course many would have lost people they knew in Port-au-Prince you know you can preach a sermon on what do you do when everything's crumbling around you but then what do you do when everything's crumbling around you and so I talked about a few things that I thought would be helpful and encouraging um, that Paul was talking to Timothy about would be helpful for us and so uh, as we came back just 30 hours ahead of the earthquake uh, I was thankful for the many phone calls that I received or Nancy did or the church did or the other folks on the team that said that we thank God that you made it back safely and I do thank God that we made it back safely But I've heard this before, and I'll hear it again, and I always think this. I don't know if you think like I do. But what if the earthquake had happened 30 hours earlier? 
I mean, what if the team had been on a bus driving through Port-au-Prince when uh, the earth moved for 10 seconds and a building had fallen on us and collapsed on us instead of those who were in the street at that time? What, what would we have called and said about God right at that moment? You know, so it's easy to say, I'm, I'm th- I thank God that you came back safely. But what if we didn't come back safely? Would you still be thanking God? That's, that's the kind of thing that goes through my mind. The purpose statement for Christ Community Church is lifted right out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it says this, Christ Community Church exists to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we, we as a leadership chose that statement but we didn't mean that we should glorify God and enjoy Him forever except when there's catastrophe. Or we should glorify God and enjoy Him forever except when we get this doctor's report back that we don't like. Or when there's war or when there's some kind of problem. Like you can always glorify God and enjoy Him when you're enjoying your life, but what happens when you're not enjoying your life? What happens when your life crumbles around you And all the things that you felt were totally secure now have totally vanquished. What do you do at that particular point? Can you still say, I can glorify God and enjoy Him forever? And so my question this week, as I said, was how do I I think biblically right now? What, What kind of handles of truth would I hold on to that would be stabilizing even if I feel like I'm in a free fall? And so I just want to walk through the five handles that I thought of at some point this week. There are many things that would be helpful to share this morning, but these are the things that uh, I ran across or thought about or prayed through, and maybe either today or some point in the future for you, they will be helpful as well. The first handle comes from Romans 12:15, and it says, Weep with those who weep. It's, it's interesting that when um, the, the, the book of Romans turns at Romans 12.1, the first 11 chapters, Paul's been having, having, having taken the Roman church a, sort of through a sweeping view of the gospel. And it's really been this sort of an incredible panoramic of what God is doing. And he gets to the very end of chapter 11, and he's, he's just about ready to make this transition and he's trying to explain it one more time with as much passion as he can sort of get out of himself as a writer. And instead of saying something, he sings something. He inserts a little hymn into the very end. And it says this, Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And yet when you turn the page and you go to chapter 12, Paul tells you even though this great thing is playing out, there's weeping left to do. And so he says, you can trust what I've just said, but you're still going to have days ahead where people are going to be weeping. 
And when they're weeping, then you should weep with those who are weeping. And Nehemiah chapter 1. You remember Nehemiah was part of the exile. He finds himself in Babylon and some folks had gone back to Jerusalem and done some um, reporting about what had happened. And they come back to Babylon and Nehemiah is somebody who's in the king's court. And when this little troop comes back from Jerusalem, he says, can you tell me about the city? Can you tell me about the people? And in Nehemiah, it says this, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, the people that survived, and also about the city of Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived are back in the province, back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed. So the first thing that Nehemiah does in the face of disaster is he sits down and he sits quietly before the Lord. Really the same thing happens with Job. He has his three friends. All these disasters come upon Job, and then he has these three friends. You remember, they come, and really the most of the book of Job is them giving different pieces of advice and Job responding to it. But when they first saw Job, this is what Job chapter 2 says, when Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with Job. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word because he saw how great his suffering was. And so, no matter how strong your theology is, how much you may trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, and no matter how loudly you may sing that and believe it, there are going to be some times that just weeping is what's called for, to sit and weep with those who weep. And maybe just to say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the answers. And maybe the answers aren't even that helpful right now. What you need is just somebody who can sit with you and weep while you're weeping. And so I found myself weeping at different points during the week and not having a lot of answers, and I'm sure you've had that same situation in your life, if not this past week. So one handle was, was weeping. A second handle was, um, let me go backwards. Remember this, um, in C.S. Lewis, in the silver chair, Jill comes out, and um, the boy that she was with has dropped over the cliff, and she can't believe that she was a part of it, and she's weeping. And she can't believe what happens. And then Lewis says, weeping is okay for a time, but then you must get on to what you should do. And so I think that's helpful. Weeping's okay for a time, but then at some point you have to say, well, how do I move forward? How do I think? How can I move away from this or move through it in some way? And so the second handle for me is helpful, and that is that uh, God's purposes and his actions uh, may remain hidden to us until the end of time. He is in no way obligated or, I think, even making 
an unusual effort for us to understand all about God. And so Romans 1, 11, I'm sorry, 1133, passage we already read, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways, for who has known the mind of God? Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So I think it's one thing that's helpful is in the midst of disaster is to be careful with a human explanation as to why something's happened. I think in all kinds of problems, it can be very easy and maybe even prideful, even if you don't think that's the motive, is to jump in and say, well, I know exactly why that disaster happened. Probably you don't especially on this scale. And so you can say, you know what, there are some things that are happening in this world. And Carol did such a great job articulating there's some things that happen that's it's always hard to see, or it's sometimes hard to see how exactly God is moving in the midst of tragedy. And so I think we want to humbly step back and say, we can see what is happening, but why this is happening, we can't always see. Sometimes in your life you can see that, other times you can't. But there are some things that we can't understand about God, and one of those things is that nature doesn't have its own will. God is not somehow up there in the sky, and nature is down here sort of doing whatever it wants to do, and then God says, oh my gosh, nature just sh shifted it's tectonic plates, and look at the disaster. I've got to rush down there and try to clean this thing up. A, a cell doesn't in, enter your body and become cancerous, and then you get a report, and you pray to God, and he goes, wow, that really caught me off guard. I'm glad you informed me. Now I've got to rush in and make something happen. Nature doesn't have its own will. Everything that's happening in the world, whether we can make sense of it or not, is somehow underneath this sovereignty of God. A couple of verses that I think can be helpful. Luke 8.25 God commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Haggai 2.6 This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will come once more and shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. Job 9 God's wisdom is profound. His power is vast. He moves mountains. He shakes the earth from its place. He makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads out on the waves of the sea. And so we can be sure that even in the worst of disasters, God is sovereignly in control. Let me make sure you get that perfectly clear. Even in the worst of disasters, whether they're worldwide or a personal disaster, God is sovereignly in control. Where is the irrefutable evidence as a Christian that that's true? The absolute worst disaster that ever happened on this planet is that the creation put to death the creator. 
that is the worst thing that could ever happen. And it has no rival. And was God surprised by that? No. It was part of a plan. And Peter stands up in his first sermon. He says, I want you to know that you put him to death, but it was by God's purpose and foreknowledge. And so there's a tension in there that we can't always resolve, but we know that God is sovereignly in control and he can bring the greatest victory out of the worst disaster. And so we're not sitting here thinking that somehow God's hand is tied in these issues. Whether we can fully understand or grasp how he's going to bring victory out of death, we don't always know. I found myself thinking, I feel like I spend so much of my life in Saturday. I thought Jesus was who he was, and then he's dead. And it's just nothing like I thought it was going to be. But see, I, I have the value of having lived through Sunday now. But now in this world, don't you find yourself plenty of times saying, it just doesn't seem like it's working out right. It's not what I had planned. I, I had this, and I, I thought God would be for sure for that. And then it's not. And I don't have any idea. It doesn't feel like I have any idea where he's going. And you live so much of your time on this planet in Saturdays and not on Sundays. And so one day when he will turn, we'll live forever on Sunday. Amen? But until then, we're going to spend a lot of days on Saturday saying, you know, all the things I hope for, all the things I dream for, all the things I plan for, just crumble. And so I'm trusting that even though I don't know why they're crumbling, that God has a plan and he's sovereignly in control even over the crumbling. The third handle that was helpful for me is really a quote from John Piper, and that is a reminder in these kinds of times that our lives are not our own. Piper says this, God's unilateral taking of thousands of lives is a loud declaration that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The message for all the world is that life is a loan from God and belongs to him. He creates it, he gives it, he takes it according to his own will, and he owes us nothing. He has a right to children and to the aged. Aged. It is a great gift to learn this truth and de dedicate our lives to their true owner rather than defraud him until it's too late. So there are a lot of young people here today and I want you to understand this handle your life is not your own life it's on loan and it's so much better for you to get that in your mind right at the front end of your life Instead of saying, thinking, well, it's just about me. It's all about my life. I've got to make sure I have my life here. You don't have a life. It's set for something that's been given to you by God. And so you and I will stand before God one day, and we're going to be accountable for what? Our lives. The Bible says every word that we speak, we're going to be accountable for. 
And so your life is not your own. It's on loan from the Lord. And so we need to understand that and be grounded in that truth that God has a right to it. It is His, and He gives and He takes away. We sing the song, He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, either way. The fourth thing that uh, was helpful for me, and I ran across this at another uh, point a few years back, and I've run across it again because it comes up pretty frequently when there's a disaster. You'll hear an interview of some kind, CNN or Fox or uh, a news channel, whatever you might listen to. And uh, somebody comes on and questions a religious person. Might be a pastor, might be somebody you know. And the first question they ask the religious person is what? Where was God? I mean, that's a question you probably have. You don't need the person to ask it. You have that same question. And although I think that's a question that's worth talking about, that's not the first or the most important question. When you say, when I say, where is God? Who's holding who accountable? You see, when you have that question, what you're saying is, God's got to answer to me. He's got to make this come out right for me. And you may say, well, that's not what I meant, meant uh, uh, to say, but that is what you're saying. And so although that question is worth trying to, dis to try to uncover some answers to, the very first question that you should ask in the midst of a disaster is not where is God, but where are you? And how do we know that? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. Right after the sin, they tried to hide from God. And God comes walking back in the garden, and what's the first thing he says? Where are you? Is that because he just can't see very well? He's gotten old after an eternity, and he's going, gosh, you guys sure are good at hide and seek. No. He knows exactly what's happened. But who doesn't know where they are? Adam and Eve, they have no idea the disaster they brought upon themselves and the whole universe. And he's trying to help them understand, do you have any idea where you are? Do you have any idea what jeopardy your soul is in? And so the first question we need to ask in the midst of a disaster is, I, I had been on a bus in Port-au-Prince 30 hours earlier and a concrete building had landed on that bus, then I'd be asking myself, where am I? Because it's going to matter right then. When a tower falls and kills a number of people in the New Testament, the disciples ask Jesus, well, why did this happen? And he looks at them and says, well, you should think about yourself and repent and trust in God. God has the answer to that question, and he doesn't give it to those men at that point. But he does say, you see that disaster? It could have been you. It is going to be you one day. 
And so the question in the midst of a death, whether it's a hundred or a thousand, is to ask, what if that had been my death? Because it will be my death one day. And where are you? Today is a great day for salvation. What a great testimony again by Carol. In the disaster of her sister having a heart attack, help her see something that she just somehow couldn't see. And it may be this moment might be, I'm looking now at my life. I'm trying to understand that it's on loan and I, I don't know where I am. And if you don't know where you are, I pray that you would either see me or a member of Christ Community Church and they can help you through that process. But you want to ask yourself, because one day it's going to be you, where are you? Where are you with the Lord? The final thing that was helpful to me was to remember how God responded to our ultimate disaster. In Genesis chapter 3, we see this sin, and it unfolds. And this massive darkness, a cloud like the cloud of dust that enveloped Port-au-Prince, is now clouded over our whole planet. And when God saw that, what was his response? He entered into it. He gave his prized son, his most precious possession, that he's willing to lose for people who didn't know him. So if that's what God does in response to disaster then it doesn't take much to see what kind of response that we should have. To enter into disaster. To give up prized possessions. And one of those possessions might be risking your own life. So we're not taking a particularly special collection for Haiti we're going to be collecting it over time. There's going to be all kinds of needs for Haiti. But I think this is a chance for us to ask ourselves, you know, am I holding on to something that really God would say, you know, you just need to go ahead and let go of that, even if it's for people that you don't know and don't know you? Maybe you've never thought about going to Haiti or going on a mission trip or getting involved. Maybe you're a young person and you have some sense that God is uh, moving in your heart to say, that's how I'd like to spend my life. We ran into four young American kids while we were over there, all maybe 25, just graduated from college. And what a great witness. They said, hey, for a year, we're going to come and at least for one year, give our lives to these orphans. And there was a sacrifice. One couple had just gotten married. They moved to Haiti. It's not your typical honeymoon spot. And so now they're trying to help these 10 orphan boys. We, we helped build the orphanage, and now they're helping to run it. So what might you be willing to give up? What might you be willing to sacrifice? And I want to say this just not for the sake of Haiti, but for Wilmington. Uh, we have a partnership or what we would say loosely is called a partnership of trying to develop relationships with the staff and the kids at Mary C. Williams, the elementary school just down the street. And so I go over there on Tuesdays and I tutor two first grade boys 
which I feel very comfortable with. But then I moved to two fifth grade boys, and I have to do math. And so I'm like, okay, I know a little bit more than you guys. Word problems. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so I go help these two boys, and I'm walking to their classroom, and I'm walking outside, and the teacher's outside of this classroom, and she's marching five fifth graders up and down this corridor. And she's hot as a firecracker. And I stood beside her and I said, uh, looks like they're having a good day. And she's like, turn around, keep going, turn around. They did it ten times, grumbling the whole time. So I asked her, I said, well, how many of these five boys live in a house with a mom and a dad? Zero. How many of these boys know their dad? She said, I think they all know their dad, but three of them, their dads are in prison. And so, see, you don't have to go to Haiti. But you've got to step out. Because that problem is not just out there. That's our problem. That's our issue. That's, we're planted here in Wilmington. And that's one little class in one little school. And we cannot do everything in Haiti, and we can't do everything for every elementary student in Wilmington. But you can say, can I give up some time? Can I give up some energy? Can I go into places? Can I step into the lives of kids who don't seem to have much in common with me, but because I have the gospel, I know I have something that they need. I'm going to just use this passage when I finished. Well, when I started my sermon, I talked about the things that I did that I, or I said from the text that I thought would be encouraging. And one of the things that Paul did for Timothy, and the very first thing he did for Timothy was to pray. Remember that? I remember you constantly in my prayer. So I want to spend just a few minutes using this text to uh, pray for the Haitian people. Lord, they are friends and brothers and sisters and even the whole country before the earthquake. We might have walked in and said, this place looks like a near disaster. And so how to describe a situation that was disastrous and a disaster happened to it, we, we find ourselves without words even though we see pictures and we understand the reporting, we can see for sure that many of these people live in a place where the fig tree does not blossom. There's no fruit on the vines. There's no water. Nothing yields food for them. Everything they had counted on, their flocks, their herds, the, what little they may have had to put aside in a stall has now been ripped away. It's very hard for us to even understand that, Lord. But we know that we can still rejoice in the Lord we can still take joy in the God of our salvation
And so we pray for Charles. We pray for Antoine. We pray for the pastors there that we support, the 10 or 12 orphan boys that we help get into the orphanage. We pray for uh, Gabriel, the pastor there in Messiah, and his family. We pray for the church members around these places that they would maybe even in Port-au-Prince, the church that just got started there this past year, would sit together around uh, the smell of decay and in a rubble of a church building that has collapsed and sing psalms of joy. And it could be a powerful testimony to those people who uh, superstitiously believe in something else or voodoo that they would see something, they would have some aroma of Christ to intersect their lives. That if these people can sing joyfully to the Lord at these moments, that, that He is the God of their salvation, He is the rock that is never going to move. May many people see and trust in you. Lord, I pray that you are their strength. And although I pray for the U.S. military and mission agencies and the government and governments and militaries of other nations to come in and help, I pray that these people would understand that you are their strength, that you would make their feet like the feet of a deer, and they would tread on the high places, if not with their feet, but spiritually, that they would know that you are good, that you are with them that you are for them. Help us, Lord, to do what you have done so greatly for us, entered into a dark heart, given up your most prized possession. Lord, for the sake of our salvation, for your glory, may we do the same. May your kingdom come. And may we be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.